0: Fellow citizens, let's be let's be, be bluntly honest. Who's the heavyweight champion of the world? Can my opinion, still and perhaps always will be the greatest. There's so much there, okay? Yeah. You know, what are we doing, preach? For help tonight. I'm in with a cry. It has on this podcast
1: pay attention to the voices that are doing the framing. What we're talking about is the consumerism. Withheld and
0: allotted only. Nobody's calling calling LeBron Black Jesus. Welcome back to Sports and Society. We're here on May 24th. It's Brad. I'm here with Kyle. We've got a special guest, Sam, today with us. How are you guys doing today?
1: Doing well. Excited to talk about some cheating.
0: (laughs) Yeah,
2: I'm doing pretty good. Thanks for having me.
0: Good. Well, Sam, why don't you introduce yourself for those that aren't so familiar with you?
2: Uh, Sure. Um, My name is Sam Lev. Uh, I am here in Roanoke, Virginia, uh, not too far from Brad. I am um, amateur runner, uh, amateur former professional baker, and general um, sports fan with my fan base being in Atlanta, which is where I grew up, so Braves, Falcons, Hawks and the thrashers gosh darn it
0: (laughs) (laughs) oh are you a fan of the MLS team as well
2: I am yeah and it's actually you know I um I haven't lived in Atlanta in a number of years so that started uh you know since I've been long gone but um it's been really cool to watch you know my friends and family around Atlanta embrace embrace Atlanta United and it's great to have them see so much success so early in their franchise history uh, i made it down to a game last season actually with my brother um and it's like a, it's a really electric atmosphere it's very cool it's a very diverse fan base down there for um for the united games so it's it, it's been super super fun to watch
1: they're crushing right. it on people coming to games i feel like isn't it like they're having like 50 60 at the games
2: yeah, well, they you know they play in the the Falcons Stadium. They can fit like sixty some thousand, and they open up the upper deck like once every three or four games and sell a ton of tickets. They have like they have like fourteen of the fifteen highest attendance games in MLS history already. It's it's unbelievable.
0: Mm-hmm. It you know as much as I have issues with the level of play quality of play in the mls there's nothing wrong with the fan experience it's pretty incredible to go to these games even back you know 10 years ago when i was going to dc united games it was a fantastic atmosphere there
2: yeah energy is very very cool with those games and like i said compared to a lot of other sporting events i've been to in atlanta like the the crowd is very diverse it's really really feels like they've brought the city together in a way that some of the other sports um haven't over the years hmm
1: one thing I've always found interesting about Atlanta, I think baseball in particular, is how the lack of professional sports in the South has led to like most of the South being either Cubs fans because all the games were on WGN or Braves fans. So like all, I went to college in Alabama, and uh, the majority of my friends in college were from Alabama and were all like die
0: Braves fans.
2: Yeah, you have Ted Turner to blame for a lot of that too. Mm-hmm. You know, yeah, to TBS.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, even up here, when, growing up in Charlottesville, um, you know, Baltimore would have been closer in many ways, but most of the folks were Braves fans still.
2: And not just like our, our. Um, I presume we're all pretty close to the same age, uh, Brad and Kyle here. Uh, but you know, our like our generation coming up with the Braves in the '90s was like they mm-hmm. were such a. Like, such an easy-to-love team and such great characters and just always up there. So they just had, like, it was a really lovely combination of things to be a Braves fan during the 90s. Even if, they, honest- did, even if they only won once.
1: <laughs> but the, those teams were, I, I wonder if it, like, is, this is just, like, my personal... Um, experience with paying attention to baseball more in the 90s but I kind of look at that Braves team as an example of a team that conjured amount of popularity that I don't know if we've experienced the same since like especially for a non-Yankees Red Sox sort of thing but that team was just so popular I feel like everyone knew who played for the Braves
2: yeah, and it's hard for me to it's hard for me to step outside of my fandom and, and kind of understand what it was like for the rest of the like the rest of the sporting world because I was I was in it, you know, I was going to games all the time and I was already a fan. But,
1: right. but
2: that's my that's my impression too. And it was yeah, it was really special. I mean I you could do a whole episode on Greg Maddox alone, I think. Um <laughs> <laughs> sometime you probably should.
0: <laughs> well, why don't we uh, jump in here, and uh, Sam, as a guest, I'll give you first uh, dibs on this. What have you been paying attention to this past week in sports?
2: Oh, you guys start, and then I will, um, I'll <laughs> I'll bring up the rear. I, I need to flesh mine out a little bit.
0: All right. Well, Kyle, how about you?
1: Yeah, I have a couple of things. I, I would love to get your take on the wrap-up of The Last Dance and then the subsequent drama that is stemming from it, so we can get into that some, but... Uh, I think what stuck out to me this week was that the NBA is uh, looking at the potential of hosting the entire season in Orlando at uh, World Disney Resort, uh, which is fascinating for several reasons. I think one of the things that stands out to me is there's a a significant amount of power with the unions right now in all of these sports. Uh, and while the unions in major leagues uh, have always had a certain amount of power, I feel like there is a real opportunity here for the unions, and I would imagine they're very aware of that and are uh, kind of keeping their cards close to their chest and not coming out and making a lot of statements, which I feel like is a pretty smart move. But nonetheless, I think what stood out to me most is that the union seemingly have a lot of power right now. And so if the NBA decides to play the rest of the season in Orlando, it will only happen if the players are behind it. Um, and so I, I don't know. I think it it kind of is taking a highlighter to the power dynamics in the NBA. And so I, I think, as we often talk about right now in, in this coronavirus era of like, how things are going to change, I could see this being a moment that we point to and say like in 50 years uh, when hopefully the unions are even more powerful, we look back and say like that was a a pivotal moment, a sort of seminal moment when uh, the unions kind of latched on to power that was afforded them.
0: Well, that is really interesting especially in light of you know some of those comments we talked about last week from the major league baseball players talking about how they're the ones taking the risks right now not the owners um and so that's a pretty clear statement right now that the owners are not the ones putting their health in their hands going out there that's the players and so that 50 50 split seems a little bit harder to justify in some ways yeah i agree um but yeah, I'm also
1: uh, annoyingly interested in Tiger and Phil and Peyton and Tom Brady playing tonight. Um, I think I, I'm mostly interested in that, like, I can't deny that I kind of want to see it flop. <laughs> um, I, I it, It's annoying on so many levels that it's getting as much attention as it is, uh, and... The four of them are just particularly uh, not desirable to me in any way. There are so many more interesting younger players that I would like to watch and have a chance to kind of like show that golf is not for 63-year-old white guys uh, only and that the game has changed a lot. But uh, Tiger and Phil are both terribly boring to me, and Peyton and Tom Brady don't uh, bring all that much more to the table. (laughs)
0: Have you been paying attention to um, – you're not on Instagram, are you, Kyle? No, I'm not. Um, I've been, I'm intrigued to know because a lot of these other sports, I and mean, we talked about this a while ago, Djokovic and Andy Murray getting on Instagram Live and talking together. Um, I haven't seen any of that stuff from the golf world, and it would have seemed to be like this perfect opportunity because golf courses, a lot of them have been open this whole time. Um mm-hmm. and they could have been out there like taking advantage of that moment to gain all these new fans playing like showing what their practice rounds look mm-hmm. like and stuff. And I haven't seen any of that stuff. I don't know if it's happening, I'm just not seeing it. But uh it does seem if it's not happening, like a missed opportunity.
1: Yeah, so I I, I think it is happening to some extent. Uh I don't think I know of anything as cool as like uh significant or interesting as what Djokovic and Andy Murray did, but I did watch Adam Scott played. Um, he calls it nine holes with a mate. And what he did is he went to a course close to where he lives that is owned by owned and maintained by the members. And they kind of pitched themselves, this course does, it's only a nine hole course, as like the most sustainable model, uh, both environmentally and just functionally for cost cost benefit really. But it's really cheap to join. And when you join, you have to log a certain amount of volunteer hours on the course, uh, building or maintaining. And so he played nine holes with um, the head pro at this course. And it was fun to watch, partly because he was rusty and this head pro is a head pro and plays a lot and so they uh halved the match. Um uh but it was fun, it was real lighthearted, but you also got to see some golf in like a non traditional way. So I feel like the opportunities out there.
0: Hmm. Interesting. Well I have to confess that I am fascinated to watch this Lance documentary tonight. Um especially in light of the last dance stuff we've been seeing, um, because it sounds like, uh, it'll add an interesting juxtaposition that Lance has kind of opened himself up, but the filmmaker, uh, had some comments this week about, she's still unclear why he was so open and uh, willing to do this, which is mm-hmm. an interesting comment to hear before we see what any of it is. But, um, it's, uh, from what I see, it's certainly not going to paint a particularly rosy picture of him. Mm
1: yeah i i i mean i he's both annoying at how much like we still have to talk about him, but it's also annoying and fascinating that I'm still fascinated in him um, and i I have to admit to listening to his podcasts here and there, and I think we've talked about before there's something just compelling about Lance Armstrong. he has a way of just garnering attention that kind of stands out to me
0: yeah. Uh, it's uh well i mean sam you grew up watching lance too didn't you
2: yeah i sure did i think you know it's really interesting to think about how like how quickly how quickly your feelings can change about someone but like he had our hearts for so many years Mm -hmm. and like i think i don't know i think a lot of us probably assumed he was he was doping in some capacity or another at least i did and and you know whether or not it was in the typical ways, or he was ever going to get caught. I think it wasn't the biggest surprise in the world when he finally came out and admitted it. Um, so it's it's just hard to it's hard to separate out the like cultural reverence we had for him at the peak of his career, and and the fact that he's still like an interesting guy that has all this experience in cycling and interesting things to say about it um, that we like can't turn him off, and we're all still fascinated to uh, To watch this documentary about him. I'm, I'm looking forward to watching it too.
0: You know, I, I have to confess to at least once a year, I'll go on YouTube and watch some of his more dominant performances. And it's still staggering to me. Uh, no, like that a human could do what he did to the other humans on that mountain. Um, like, even though I know he was doping, it still boggles my mind that he could accomplish what he did. Um, So I I don't know how to explain it. But um, I think I'll be interested to see. Apparently there's some stuff that's going to come out tonight about how early he started doping and stuff like that. So that'll be interesting to catch up on. Because I think there's a lot of folks that still think that he just started after after he got over the cancer stuff. And I think we're going to find that that was not the case at all. Mm -hmm. Um, But uh, interesting nonetheless. Because I think it juxtaposes two different kinds of documentary one that I don't think Lance had quite the same level of editorial control as Jordan has had over this last dance. And so it'll be interesting to see how that comes across and how ESPN handles that. Um, and of course Jordan and Lance are two very different people in the public psyche right now. So.
1: Well, it raises the really interesting question of why, like why, why did Michael Jordan agree to making this documentary? And, like, why did Lance Armstrong agree to making this documentary? Mm-hmm. Like, what what is it that drives them to that? What, what do they have to say or what do they feel they have to say uh, or get out there in the world? Um, I, I think that's what always sticks out to me. And I think about it in terms of uh, Michael Jordan getting a lot of scrutiny from his former teammates. Uh, and even he admitting that the documentary can make him look like an asshole. Um, it, it's the same with Lance. I, I, when I saw that this documentary was being made last year or so, um, I was thinking of like, he had just settled a hundred million dollar lawsuit <laughs> against him by the United States government. Like, why would you want any more scrutiny on you? Like, I would imagine his liability is still high in some places. Um, so, I, it, it just raises that why question for me
0: yeah i'm i'm there as well and i you know i think that'll be something that i'm intrigued to talk about when we get into this main topic here but um i, I wonder how much of it is an addiction to a certain kind of attention mm-hmm. um but uh I talk a little bit uh, before we get into that i do want to talk a little bit more about the fallout from this last dance stuff particularly hearing scotty pippen and horace grant essentially coming out as being furious about everything um particularly because I think Scotty's come off really well in the modern media stuff, but he's clearly furious with Michael at the moment.
1: Yeah. I, I've, I felt it through the whole documentary of when there were moments in the, their whole career together, wherein Scotty Pippen was seemingly uh, not as macho or not as competitive or doing something, uh, very human that in Michael Jordan's inhuman way of approaching the world looked, made him look like a lesser man or something like that. Uh, and I found that to be maybe the most derogatory aspect of it all. Uh, and I think that gets back to the piece of Michael Jordan controlling the narrative. Um, so it was just that like dominance over Scotty Pippen that was really kind of off-putting to me. And it's where I can sympathize with Scotty.
0: Mm-hmm. Well, yeah, I think Scotty comes off as much more human through the whole thing in many ways that mm-hmm. um you know, he just seems like a relatable guy that you'd want to you'd want to talk to about it. But um yeah, it's a, a different caliber of of competitiveness for Jordan from everybody else.
1: Did this change your perspective of Michael Jordan?
0: Um no, I don't think so um i think it amplified some things um uh seeing him like particularly in those last couple of episodes going at scotty burrell was just really painful to watch Mm -hmm. um but then also like i think that's who i knew he was before um so i I don't know. I think the most troubling thing for me has been the aftermath. I sent you that Richard Jefferson mm-hmm. thing, which for context here for those that haven't seen this. Richard Jefferson was on the the leap, I guess is what the ESPN show is called um, and talked to glowingly about how now a new generation of folks is going to understand this is how competitive you need to be to to do this and it's like oh gosh that's that's not the message i hope people are taking away from this documentary mm-hmm. right but who knows
1: yeah that central question emerges for me of like how the public is viewing it are they taking it as like a a road map or a warning um and i think i we would probably fall out definitely more on the warning side of it but it it, it makes me wonder
0: Sam, is there somebody in the running world that's like a notorious asshole that divides opinion in this way?
2: Um you know, Alberto Salazar is definitely a pretty divisive character. Um he's a co he's you know, he's a former professional um an Olympic runner, but is a night, like the famous Nike coach now, are you guys familiar with him? Mm -hmm. Yeah. 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 And I think he, he's garnered a lot of love for the work he's done for people, but also has a lot of like dark experiences with folks that, um, show a much kind of seedier side to his world that, that people aren't really, you know, people don't really see on a regular basis. Um, that's the only one I can think of right now.
0: Hmm. Mm. Well yeah, that whole thing kind of blew up this last year about the the female runner that went out there and had such a miserable time. Uh, I'm forgetting her name at the moment, but uh, uh
1: Mary kane,
0: yeah, yeah, so I was
1: interested. I wonder uh if you have any insight on this in but I saw that Mary Kane and another male runner have uh I wish I would have thought to bring this up, but they have signed on with um, a company organization. And the idea is that they can be professional runners, but they only run when they feel like it. And they also don't have to win uh, in order to get paid. So essentially, they're on a salary, uh, which isn't very common in the running world, as I understood it. Uh, and then I also came across, my references are horrible right now. Um, another guy that was a former, uh, Olympian, I think he ran like the 800 or the 1500 and he is now calling himself a reborn professional athlete because he had, he's kind of taken on this role as social media influencer and he's considering that to be, uh, considering himself to be a professional athlete because of that in that he he can post something on instagram or he can post a race that he organizes i saw him he was like i'm back in my hometown there's going to be a one mile race tomorrow at our high school track for uh and the winner gets a pair of vapor flies uh and so he posted that race and it gets like a million views on youtube uh and so he's like i'm a professional athlete um,
2: yeah that's that's nick simmons i nick think simmons. Right? yeah 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 i mean I've, I've watched some of his stuff in some ways he's like he's what i love so much about like running and, and post-professional running because he has just taken this concept of like you know I've, I've been at the highest level i still am pretty fit and i have all these experiences and i just want to share them with people and mm-hmm. i i kind of love it um i think he's like you said, for those races, he's bringing people together. He still seems to be affiliated with some shoe brands and a couple other, you know, like influencer type type branding. But um, I I think the the work he does now do we call him a professional athlete? Uh, maybe. I mean, he's using his sport and his high like his high level of skill at that sport to make money, right? Right. Um, right. And, but I think it's really just like bringing people together and showing showing a human side to the sport that I think is really neat.
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah.
2: yeah. And then back to the 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 new contracts for Mary Kane, and um, I'm I'm not sure who the other gentleman is. I haven't heard about this yet, but it's super interesting to me. I mean, you're certainly hearing a lot of a lot of the athletes for the that are sponsored by the big shoe brands that are struggling, right? Women that want to start a family and are like losing, you know, are are getting in trouble with Nike with, with their contracts and people who feel like they have to train and race twelve months a year and 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 get burnt out like Mary Kane did and get into really like unhealthful situations. And so I right. am interested to see where that goes and you know you might find with the right people in that sort of scenario that they they thrive because they set their own boundaries and they set their own goals and and aren't subject to the kind of bigger machine that um you know turns them into the product.
0: Right. right. What so I'm in I this is just out of curiosity and hasn't kind of out of left field, but, um, Sam, do you know anything about what the world of like these lesser professional runners looks like? So I think about somebody like Alan Webb, who was like at the very top of the sport for a while and then kind of wasn't there anymore. And there's so many other folks that I think like kind of labor and anonymity for most of us, even though the running world probably thinks and knows that they're stellar. What does that life look like for someone that's like the 30th best miler in the country, or even the 10th best?
2: Yeah, I mean, there's a there's certainly so I would liken it really simply to um, like a single a minor league baseball player. Right. Where, yeah, you can kind of make a living, um, but you're scraping by uh, you're dedicating your whole life to it and you're kind of scraping by, but you're doing it right. There's um, there's a lot of. Semi-professional running and training teams, places where people live together and run together, and maybe hold down part-time jobs and bring in a little bit of sponsor money because the team is sponsored by a shoe brand or something. Um, uh, there's a lot of them out there. I mean, I when I where I went to college, there was a team nearby called Zap Fitness, and you 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 get a lot of those runners who are. You know a lot of their goals are just to make the olympic trials right to be good enough to make the trials not necessarily to compete for a spot on the olympics um, or on like on the american olympic team but instead to really get to that point where you're making it to the biggest stage and that's the end goal that's like the a goal for the season and that, yeah i mean they're struggling i think they don't make a lot of money but they um just like a a player for the Roanoke Rail Yard Dogs hockey team, you know, they're like living their dream for a little while. Um, and I think it's really, I think it's admirable and neat that at least in running and just like a lot of other professional sports is the mechanism to give it a go.
1: I just looked this up and it's, uh, Mary Kane and Nick Willis.
0: Uh, oh yeah.
2: He's a, uh, he's from New Zealand, right?
0: I just watched uh, a YouTube clip of him running the 6th the Street or whatever mile yesterday. I, yeah, know, I guess and so he didn't win it yesterday, but...
1: Uh, they've signed with Tracksmith, and um, yeah, it's a New York Times article, and they're saying that uh, the goal is for them to be treated like full-time employees, and so they run when they want, but they don't have to win those races, and then they're also uh, essentially just brand managers. And so they're increasing the presence of the brand um,
2: hmm. yeah, I mean, you don't have to um you can do that for a company without having performance bonuses or right. um, like minimum standards and things like that, i suppose uh for especially for people like them that have you know have a solid following and have some notoriety already. I'm mm-hmm. interested mean, to see how that goes,
1: yeah.
0: Well, let's, um, before we jump into our amateur sports thing here, let me ask you, Kyle, um, just to kind of put a bow on this last dance stuff, any final takeaways from it for you?
1: I, I don't think I can get away from kind of what I already attempted to iterate a little bit, and that is just, um, uh, it's such a massive force uh, in, and it, it gets zo- like into the space of zooming way out of what is Michael Jordan and how difficult it is to answer that question, but how important of a question I feel it is, and it says so much about uh, the person answering that question and how that individual um, like literally looks out on society. And so when you look at Michael Jordan, do you see something that we should emulate and laud and be proud of? Or do we see a lot of red flags and warning signs? And then trying to sift in there between it all um, is really difficult to do. And as this fallout continues from the documentary, I, I am just more and more compelled by the argument that when you give the subject of the documentary as much control as he had... Um, it's gonna create a lot of problems, Um, and then when you put that alongside something like Instagram, it's like, well, if if he just told this through like Instagram Live, would that be different? And it probably would because of the medium of it. And so the ESPN was willing to essentially give Michael Jordan like an Instagram Live account uh, on their platform. Kind of changes the nature of it too, so i I guess I'm interested in like how it gets out to the world and how the world makes sense of it.
0: Hmm.
1: yeah I don't know I'm
2: ready. What about you? I'm ready for the Wayne Gretzky documentary to come out next
0: <laughs> I'd be down for that. I don't know nearly as much about Wayne as I would like to,
1: yeah, I would watch that that would be fascinating
0: um. So I have to say that this is, for me, it's put a light to the ways that I separate sports and the rest of the world in my mind, Um, particularly looking at how for, like, I still, from a basketball perspective, would much rather, uh, not even just rather watch, but appreciate Jordan more than I do LeBron, and yet the more I learn about Jordan, the more I'm like, man, as a person, as like the rest of what I care about, I cannot support Jordan at all and yet it's really hard for me to give up that pure basketball. Like this person drove their drive to perfection was the best that we've ever seen. Uh, and it left all kinds of problems. But from a pure basketball perspective, that is the that is what I want to see. Um, and so that's a little it's been hard for me to grapple with. Like, uh, how do I overcome that? Or is it even possible for me at this point in my life to overcome how much I still appreciate that drive and need to be the best.
1: Yeah, it raises so many central questions, right? That, that kind of underlie and are the main thing to be exploited in that being like competition, achievement, greatness. Uh, at, at what point are we willing to say something is like too great? Uh and what has to happen along the way for us to get uh, kind of the emotion we want to get from sports uh, in in kind of like a bastardized way. Mm-hmm. Um, how much is too much, maybe, is the question.
0: Well, I think we'll be grappling with these questions for a while, but let's talk about people that are taking competitiveness too far in an amateur sense, and uh, we're going to talk about cheating in amateur sports today as our main topic. Um, And so, Kyle, you shared this article on WIRED. Do you want to kind of give an overview of what it was as a kind of starting point for this, this conversation?
1: Sure. So this was a story that was published in WIRED magazine in February of this year. It was reported on by Gordy Megros. And it was sent to me by a friend, Nick Goen. And uh, Nick is not a runner, which I found interesting in the sense that the story is not so much about running as it is what happens around the sport. And the story can be detailed quite quickly, I think. And it's basically that there is an individual, he lives in Cincinnati, his name's Derek Murphy, And he runs a website and operation that scans through all um, post-race running data. So he looks through all the splits of all the runners and has these algorithms that can uh, shoot out to him suspect splits. And the idea here is to find people that have cheated, either gone off course or kind of shed their uh, running chip or there's a number of ways to do it. Maybe hopping on a bike uh, even has happened. But uh, he searches for and um, sheds a light on people that have cheated in these races. And so uh, one in particular really stood out uh, was a man that was a cross-country coach. He was a doctor and an avid runner and had run something like you know 100 marathons. Uh, and he was an older man when he popped up on Derek Murphy's screen. Derek Murphy contacted him and was able to point out that this man has been cheating for a while in uh, marathons. And it went so far as to the uh, man that was caught cheating committed suicide, Um we don't know exactly why, but there's a strong correlation that it was to the fact that he was caught cheating and the public shame that was brought on him. And uh, the other side of this story is the social media aspect, that he was kind of being lambasted on social media and in the running world kind of at large. Um, and so it, it has a really sad ending, and it raises all these questions about, like, um who cheats and why, I I think is central. And then on the other side of it is, um, what do we do with people cheating in amateur sports and what's an appropriate way to go about mitigating the consequences of people cheating? So I think a question that stands out for me is, how uh, complicit is Derek Murphy in this man's suicide? How complicit is social media Uh, who's to blame here is it the cheater is it the people that police the cheaters and then ultimately a question for me is like who polices the policers in this amateur world of kind of trying to find cheaters and and point them out Um, so I think that's kind of the basic of the story there's so much more in there that can be talked about but I think that would suffice
0: yeah. Now, when I uh, reached out to you, Sam, you you know this this story before, right?
2: Yeah. As far as I know, this um, this gentleman's been been like running numbers on marathon cheaters for a little while now. Um, I hadn't I hadn't read this particular story, but I had heard about him and his um, his effort to expose these folks.
0: So uh, I'm intrigued. You know, I think. Uh, the questions are, uh, you, that you laid out there are central, Carl, and I'm, uh, uh, I'm intrigued to kind of um, start off with a point of asking you guys, um, uh, Sam, perhaps in particular, because I think you've participated in more races than the rest of us. A- have you experienced uh, cheating or seen someone cheat in a race like this before?
2: Um I I have no doubt that I have been in races where someone has cheated in some capacity. Um have I had a direct experience with someone doing that? Um I can't recall one off the top of my head. Uh you know, Roanoke's a pretty small town and um the races I, I tend to run are not particularly enormous. Uh, my guess is if I have if I've seen someone cheat, that probably it has happened inadvertently. So I wouldn't call it cheating. It's accidentally taking a wrong turn that cuts off part of the course, um, which I have definitely seen, and I think may have even seen in my most recent most recently run race before this outbreak. Um, but I don't think it was on purpose. Um, so no, I wouldn't say i've been I've been like uh, privy to or a victim of anybody really like really aggressively trying to cheat during a race file. Uh,
1: I have two instances I think I've experienced, and again, I, I they're they're interesting for their the greatness of it all. One was a triathlon where the race organized. There were some uh, boats in this bay. And the organizer said you could swim between the boats, uh, which essentially made um, the route shorter. And so a lot of people did, and a lot of people were upset about it after the race. And then there was also a case where part of the bike path um, was very narrow, and they asked everyone to slow down on that part of the bike path. And I, like, was getting just absolutely, like... Dropped by some people on that part of the race. I mean, they were like absolutely, they were going full tilt on that part of the track. And so those were two cases that stood out to me personally. Hmm.
0: Interesting. Well, I'm, uh, it's interesting, Sam, that you bring up the accidental part because I I did some, read some other things that made the part clear. So, like, there's a story that came out about a woman who like, uh, was apparently very prominent in her community as a running coach and and stuff that accidentally trimmed like 0.15 off of her route um, and came in third. And the person that came in fourth went on social media and wrote like a thousand words in a in a forum that they shared everything together. Um, and so it's uh, – and she's like still – even though she's gone back and like given back her winner, her third place medal or whatever – uh, she's still uh, like dealing with the repercussions of that accidental trimming off, even though the race organizer like talked about how there was supposed to be someone standing there, but they weren't. Um. So that's a whole other component to this, and so that shame component seems really strong here.
2: Yeah, and I think I mean I think that goes back to kind of answering some of the questions that that Kyle was asking. Uh, the reverse of the the kind of shaming side of it is. The seeming kind of glory of getting to post about your your accomplishments and your results on social media, I think, probably makes the um, the desire to cheat and to fudge your results and to to find a way to look better than you maybe actually do is um, is probably a little bit addictive uh, when it comes to being able to kind of show off your finisher's medal or show off what place you finished or your new PR, for example. Um, I think there's probably a strong calling to that specifically because we have such a reach with our, our friends and family and people whose opinions we care about,
0: you know? Yeah. I'm also just struck by how easy it seems to be on some level. There's a, there's another guy that writes for runner's world that talked about, he set out to cheat in the, in the process of trying to figure out why people would do it. And I thought it was really interesting. He, he like, it was a course that came back on itself. And so he came back on the track after this, uh, the sixth place runner had gone by, uh, and he shaved about two and a half minutes off his personal best, um, and posted about, him, apparently got no attention, but then got a bunch of attention when he later admitted that he, um, he cheated to get that two and a half minute better time. But just interesting, like what is it about that acclaim that, um, Is possible Um, I don't understand Uh, I don't understand what you're getting from those those few comments on social media that's making it worth what you're putting yourself through
1: yeah that so I was interested to um, fully dig into something I've kind of always known is there but I've never paid that much attention to and that being Uh, the specific instance of cheating on Strava. And so uh, to learn a few things that um, are are really uh, quite troubling, but also fascinating, Um, one was it's possible to upload a ride or a run uh, on Strava into this website called Digital EPO. Have you all heard of this? No. No. and it can just slightly tweak your entire route and your output and your wattage and your cadence mm. and everything. And it'll do it algorithmically so that nothing looks uh, weird. And it's it's a way essentially to just improve everything you're doing on Strava just slightly enough so that you can't tell the difference. And then within that, there are all these sort of cheats you can do um, physically, Uh it's possible to like when a lot of riders do this is they won't start riding into, or they won't start recording until like a mile or two into a ride. Um, they'll pause it at slow spots. Um, there's even a story of a guy on Strava was doing a really hard climb and saw he wasn't going to get the king of the mountain that he wanted. And, uh, It's probably worth pointing out what king of the mountains are. So on Strava, there's uh, certain segments throughout all the cities in the world uh, where you can race against other people that have ridden or run over that same segment. And whoever has the fastest time and fastest pace over that segment gets a king of the mountain or a queen of the mountain. At any rate, this guy took his GPS off his bike at the top of this climb when he realized he wasn't going to get it, and he threw it the last like 50 yards. (laughs) such that the GPS said he got the KOM. Um, So there's just all these ways you can do it. Um, There's other examples, but I think what stands out to me is that it's so possible to cheat on Strava. The question becomes like, who cares? But also people do care. And so what do we do with the fact that people do care and that people are doing it? it? It's tricky to know where to go in that space for me.
2: Well, I think what makes it such a gray area is, and this kind of speaks to Strava specifically, which is kind of a wild world, but but the general world of amateur sports is that, um, like the rules are much more gray, right? Uh, when it comes to like a local road race or a small triathlon or the way the leaderboards and the king of the mountains are set up on Strava, um, like, what is to stop someone from trying to cheat if that's their end goal? Because the like the like it's not as highly regulated, right? Strava has like a general fair play statement that they expect their users to follow, but there's not a lot of teeth behind it. And so it's just like a lot of other kind of parts of like CD parts of the internet and social media world, um, you can sit behind. You can hide behind your profile and and not have a lot of repercussions if you just want to walk away from it or turn it off. And so, I think it's it's yeah, it's it's so um, it's such a fuzzy area to to play in. But just like social media in general, just like scrolling Instagram and Facebook, it's it's addictive. And I think seeing your name, being the being a competitive person, like a lot of endurance athletes probably tend to be, it's it's addictive to want to push your name up to the top of that list. It's addictive to see to see that crown next to your um,
0: mm-hmm.
2: next to your efforts. Uh, and I think a lot of people probably uh, the like the broader. The broader problem is that a lot of people are too are, are hyper focused on the ends as opposed to the process, mm. um, and when you spend all of your time during the process focusing on that end goal, I think it can really cloud your judgment um, and make it a little easier to to take that GPS unit off and throw it towards the finish line. Yeah. Hmm. Well, yeah, and
0: it. it, it- Go ahead, Ben. Well, I just, I mean, there is so much gray. I mean, particularly when you're talking about something like Strava, but even that local road race, I mean, how many folks on there, even like uh, for medical reasons are taking testosterone and what is that doing to their performance? I mean, there's so much gray space in there. and So you don't know what anybody else on that Strava is doing to enhance that uh, stuff. I mean, on some level it's a little more authentic maybe than some of these longer races are. Cause you at least know on that KOM that they, the GPS says they went that route. But, um, yeah, it's just so hard to, you, there's so many other factors you can't weigh into that. Sam, you have some KOMs, right? How many, uh, what do you feel when someone takes that from you?
2: You know, I, um, I kind of love, uh, I kind of love Strava KOMs. It, it is, it's very addicting. And, um, I have some around Roanoke and some other places I've traveled and it's always like a little pang of, I mean my little competitive edge gets like, gets triggered a little bit when I get that email. So you get, um, usually you either get a notification on Strava or you get a little email that popped in that says like, someone stole your course record. Um, (laughs) um, And I immediately look at it because I want to know what happened and who did it and how fast did they run and was it like a fast run or were they just sprinting during that one segment? Um, I am often prone to, uh, especially if it's a local segment or, uh, you know, a local route prone to like throwing my week's plans out the window and going after it the next day. Cause I want it back.
1: Yeah. Um,
2: yeah. so that's like, it's definitely a competitive outlet. And I think, you know, the absurdity of, uh, of it is not lost on me. And, and the absurdity of a lot of this stuff is not lost on me when it comes to amateur sports, because, it's, un, it's it's not highly regulated, it's open to the public, so you never know, like leaderboards and, and race podiums and all that stuff, like you never know who's going to show up and you have no control over the people you're racing against. And so it's hard to, in some ways it's difficult to kind of go out and think about competing against other people in these, in these small-time local races until you get to that professional level where there's real incentives and you know who you're racing and you know what the standards are. Um, Anyone could show up and beat me and smoke me on a on a Strava King of the Mountain or show up at a local race for whatever reason they want, right? And so, what it speaks to is like is the the real goal of, of amateur sports, um, like the purest form of amateur sports, should like is competing against yourself. And there's ways to cheat that too and show off on social media that you set new PRs and stuff.
1: Have you ever been uh suspect of someone that took over a KOM and been like, there's no way, or like, I kind of know that that person, and I, I don't think they did that?
2: Yes. Yeah, definitely. Um, and I will say uh, to to those people, like, nine times out of ten, it's someone that accidentally logs a bike ride as a run. Um Yeah. yeah. Uh, and then, but Strava, Strava is okay at catching that stuff pretty quickly these days. Like they have fixed their algorithms to um, to update those those results. But yeah, I mean, there's there's always a little part of me that wants to the, like look at that look at that run that took my segment and. Um, and just make sure, like, test the veracity of it. Look at their pace and see if they're if it's someone I don't know to like look at some of their other runs and 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 just ensure that uh, that it's legitimate. Um, I can't say I've had a lot stolen that I haven't believed were at least a run. Um, so I don't I don't know that I've been cheated out of any uh, by like by people who are cutting, you know, trying to cut the course or um, or riding or whatever the, the case may be. Um, but again, we're talking about, you know, Rona, Virginia here. Um, <laughs> not the well, of so, like, the hottest segments around.
1: So I, I think what stands out to me then is uh, the difficulty of um, what to do with a guy like Derek Murphy. Uh, that is essentially dedicating a huge portion of his life to outing people that are cheating. And I think, as best as I, I would be interested, really interested in your take on this, is I, as best I understand it, the real um, impetus to do it is the Boston Marathon. And the idea is to catch people that have qualified for Boston by cheating. And essentially what they have done is take a spot away from someone that uh, would have otherwise have earned that fairly and legitimately. And that that is maybe like, and then it it gets into questions of like, okay, well then like, why is Boston so important? And I think there is a really good argument that Boston is really important. And then it becomes this question of like, okay, well, why is Boston so important? How did we get to a point to where... Uh, the cultural persuasion is that Boston is this kind of sacred space. Uh, and so it gets really interesting of, like, how, to what extent should we flag people for illegal KOMs and then to a heightened state, to what extent should we point out people that illegally um, qualify for Boston and how should we go about doing that?
2: I mean, you bring up a really good point, and I I, <laughs> I don't want to say that his... Um mr murphy's uh mission is a a noble one necessarily but but the i think the really interesting part of what you said is that there are there are victims to cheating even at the amateur level Mm -hmm. someone fudges a result to get into boston means that one fewer person gets in because the standard gets that much faster or because you know it sells out that much quicker and that's i mean that's a reality at all of the major american marathons these days Um, uh, Marine Corps in New York and, and, and Chicago. And they all, I mean, they all have these, these standards and these, these really short windows to, to register and get in. And so if someone's taking a spot that didn't earn it, um, there's a victim there, uh, maybe a one-to-one victim. And so, you know, I would say that it's nice that at least even at this kind of, um, informal level, this guy's got this website, but and it may, it may not be sanctioned per se, but I, I, I do think it's important to find ways to make sure that that we can test the veracity of these results. I mean, the same things we're talking about with Strava um, that have created all of these standards and all of these fun forms of competition, all these ways for people to cheat, are also the downfall, right? I mean, he's analyzing split results and people's GPS results, um, GPS data, and those those are the things in a lot of ways that you can't hide from. Um, like you can't, you can't, you can't lie on the data in a lot of ways when you're looking at, um, mile splits and GPS points on the map and, and checkpoints along the course. Um, so it's like, if you're going to subject yourself to the result and you're going to subject yourself to the data, you open yourself up for scrutiny. And if you cheat, you know, like if you cheat, you kind of deserve to get caught. Mm-hmm. Maybe that's a little bit of a hot take, but and and again, we're in like this unsanctioned world of of amateur sports in a lot of ways. So there's not a lot of mechanism to catch these people, but um, but that doesn't mean it's a victimless. Uh, it doesn't mean it's a victimless issue, and it doesn't mean that if you're if you're cheating and stealing podium spots, you're taking it from someone that is potentially working really hard to do the same thing.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think that you know, for me, the issue I have is not necessarily with the Derek murphy's of the world it's more with the the pile on stuff that comes along with it and so you know um i have no issues with someone i my bigger issue would be with the race organizers that Derek murphy has to be the one to do this um mm-hmm. that it should seem that that should fall on the race organizers to do that um and to normalize that in some ways makes it uh Harder and makes it uh, more egregious when people do cheat. But the more the bigger issue seems to be on the uh, on the social media side. Of things I have not spent any time on the Let's Run uh, message boards, but these uh, these articles certainly don't paint those in a particularly rosy light at this point.
1: Yeah, they they seem to be harbingers of all that is horrible about the internet. <laughs> You know, in a lot of ways. And, and so I, I agree, Brad, I, I think there's an important conversation there about who bears the responsibility for maintaining the integrity of the sport, which is a difficult question to answer. But I think in this way, it seems pretty clear that Boston does have um, a, a role to play there, maybe, in that I, I, I'm kind of ignorant of what they already do, and I'm sure they do a lot. Uh, but that there is still space for a Derek Murphy and that there is still space for these forums, says that there maybe is uh, space for up in the ante a little bit from the race organizers and the institutions that um, maybe make the most money off of running or at least get something out of it, that they have a responsibility to pay that back. Um, it also makes me think of like. The real issue here, as you mentioned, is like how these where and how these conversations play out. And I think of like a a truism of how we gauge the goodness of a culture by looking at their prisons and what they do with people that have broken rules. And so in that way, the idea that a man was forced to suicide because of the shame that was piled on him on a on a running forum makes me think that the real the or maybe something that would be really important and worthwhile would be to figure out how we can go about having this conversation in a more civil manner.
2: And what's an appropriate uh, what's an appropriate punishment for someone who fudges right. right. results? Um, cutting a course by a tenth of a mile. Uh, is a cheat to the people who worked really hard to, to put on and to run that race. Yeah. But, but in the pantheon of our society, we're not talking about a very egregious crime here.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Well, it's, I think that punishment issue is key as well, because I think in some ways what we see, you know, in the rest of the sports world. So if someone, you know, I think part of our frustration with a rod in baseball was always that he never seemed to get the punishment we all thought he should get. Uh, And so that made us all frustrated with him. And so I think in some ways, if you saw, so if this guy um, whose name is escaping me, this poor, uh, this unfortunate gentleman that uh, committed suicide um, tragically, uh, if he had been punished when he had originally, this had happened, I feel like there would not have been the need to shame him so publicly. And then you wouldn't have had this outcome in the in the same way. He would have either changed his ways or not been allowed to race or whatever it may have been. But that that by in some ways by the race organizers continuing to not punish him when they knew that he might have cheated in past races uh, allows that situation to be amplified and and allows for mob justice in some ways. Mm-hmm. It's like the old yeah. west movie where when you when you when the sheriff actually arrests the person then he can't get lynched anymore. So. Um,
2: yeah and i think emotions i mean when it comes to mob justice i mean especially on social media like emotions run so high for a lot of people for whom this hits really close to home who put in a lot of hours of work on their own who who work really hard to set and accomplish goals and um and feel some very real frustration about people you know usurping all of that hard work i mean i my experience lies in endurance sports and it takes, I mean, it takes a lot of sweat and a lot of time and a lot of, you know, a lot of physical effort and pain to, to get to the place where you want to be and, um, and to watch someone try and skate past that. Uh, is, is a very real frustration for sure. Hmm.
0: All right. Well, Sam, what's your favorite KOM in town so I can go ride my bike over this afternoon and and, and illegally (laughs) take it from you? Oh,
2: gosh. I don't (laughs) want to tell you the ones I still have. Um, You know, what's funny is I, for a long time, and I think I might still have the loop on Roanoke Mountain, which is like a nice little four-mile up and down a mountain and I got it, like, six months before there was a landslide on the back side of the mountain. And so that road is closed indefinitely now. <laughs> so I think I think <laughs> might be able to keep that one forever. <laughs> uh, so that one sits at the top for me because I will never lose it. Um, I want to I just say one more. Um, we've been talking a lot about cheating in, in running and in cycling and endurance sports. But I want to... Um, I just want to make a note of some other sporting mm-hmm. worlds that you can cheat in at the amateur level. I've been thinking a little bit about golf, and I want to hear if you guys have anything to say about um, about trying to fudge the numbers at in, 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 in the amateur level of golf.
0: Well, I mean, we that? certainly saw Rick Riley take our president to the task over this issue. <laughs> <laughs> Have yeah, you, I mean, you're 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 the golf guy, uh, guy. What have you seen on the in the country clubs, man? Um,
1: I've seen a whole lot of cheating, um, an an exceptional amount of cheating, and what is interesting about it is again how gray it all can be, um, and I mean, I similarly, I I, I have felt the same forces that. Uh, kind of drive the kom world or the qualifying for Boston world uh, very personally. Um, I, I would say in youth golf, it's especially rampant. Um, I, I mean, I would be willing to like put out into the world that there's like not a junior golf event where cheating hasn't happened. Uh, and it's partially because a lot of those kids are under so much pressure and so much stress to do well, especially at the higher level junior events. Um, but yeah, I mean, I also kind of agree with the cliche that you can tell a lot about a person, uh, in a round of golf with them. And there's interesting parts of that too, of like, I think there is something to be said on not taking the rules of golf super seriously when you're just playing with some friends in the sense that the rules of golf are um, kind of silly in a lot of ways. And so there's reasons to not take them seriously. One is like speeding up play and things like that. But then there are also times like if you're playing in a tournament setting, which they need to be more rigid, but it, it's just so hard to enforce. So I've seen I've seen it at all levels in all types of scenarios.
0: Well, How many times have we seen a golfer get, penalized for something that someone saw on TV and reported later that no one saw uh, when it was actually happening and that the golfer may not have even known that they broke the rules to do that. Right. Yeah.
2: Yeah, I think that, I mean, to, to even move beyond golf and, and endurance sports, I think there's, there's this, a distinction, a really clear distinction to be made between, you know, sport at the recreation level versus mm-hmm. sport at the competitive level and competitive being amateur or professional, there's obviously a wide range in that competitive side. But, um, yeah, I mean, I think a lot of rules get pretty asinine when you're talking about just doing it to enjoy, um, to enjoy the sake of the sport versus, uh, doing it to try and better yourself or compare yourself to other people or, or your own past results. Right. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Well, so we, we always in the pro shop, I've pro shops I've worked in, it's it's a I'm realizing now it's so similar to a Strava leaderboard, but the um, uh, handicap indexes that are posted publicly in pro shops of all the members, uh, we would laugh as the pro shop employees and like we knew every single golfer on the like top fifty. And we could go through and put a highlighter to every single one that we're like, nope, that's not their handicap.
2: <laughs>
1: right. And it's the difference to like, especially if someone's like a a one or a two handicap, yeah. it's possible to drop to a one just by maybe fluffing up like one or two lies in a round. So like you get one bad lie in a round, it might cost you three strokes, um, and so if you fluff that lie, you just say you're three strokes and you went up 12 spots on the uh, handicap leaderboard. Um,
2: I think what's so what's so like I, and maybe I'm a little ignorant to how the handicap leaderboards might work, but it seems really ironic to think about. Wanting to move yourself up the leaderboard, which only penalizes you if you're actually being <laughs> monitored and tracked in a tournament, right?
1: Well, so it it can go both ways a lot It is also possible to point out on that list like who is padding their handicap Right, who's mm-hmm. loving that, some
2: shots to, yeah. to, get a, to get a worse hand a lower handicap or higher handicap rather.
1: That is a very real thing and and I have seen many post-Sunday afternoon like Uh, verbal spats between grown men about someone playing in a higher handicap group and making a whole lot of money in a skins game on Sunday morning (laughs) and people being really upset about it.
0: Yeah. Oh, gosh. Hmm
1: leave it the country again, it just, leave it the country clubs to make this as horrible and as distasteful
0: as possible <laughs> well sam your questions got me thinking about like what other sports are we seeing this in um you know and there's all kinds of stuff even you know for me who's sam uh is the one person i play at chess that i can't seem to get past um so uh, fuck you on that, Sam. But uh, <laughs> pardon my French. <laughs> I
2: don't know if I'm cheating. We haven't set the rules yet, so no, uh, but, if you want to call me out? Feel free.
0: No, but if you're there's some fascinating videos out there about people claiming that people playing online are using engines uh, and stuff like that to improve their play. Uh, Grandmasters even that are like there's all this there's these, all these stories about people that have got. Uh, uh, smartphones in the bathroom and they like tape them up under the toilet seat or something like that and go check them during a game Mm -hmm. uh it is uh it's just rampant it it does make me think though about the difference between cheating of this kind in, in an individual sport versus in a professional sport um or in a team sport excuse me like i'm trying to think like my sports have almost always been team sports and it's just hard for me to think back about basketball and anyone that i know was blatantly cheating because it just felt harder to blatantly cheat at basketball than it did some other things
1: well so i wanted to bring up a basketball example um that i just found really interesting and i have like um just always been i it's always on my mind is uh So a a group of my friends after college came home and started playing in a YMCA basketball league. And uh, meanwhile, another one of our friends that played D1 basketball was spending those years playing professionally in Europe. So he played like six or seven years in Europe. He comes home from Europe, moves back home and joins them in the YMCA league. Uh, And they were already, I think, like the top team in the league. Uh, And they just absolutely pummeled everyone. And he would score like 43 points a game in these Y League games. Uh, And there was a protest of everyone else in the community saying that he wasn't allowed to play. Um, Which was a really interesting example of like how it affects a community. Because there would have been, you know, 100 or so people in this small community that wanted to play rec Y League uh, but they felt something was unfair and that it was cheating to have a certain individual on the team. But he w- technically wasn't a professional anymore. He was just an amateur basketball player.
0: Well, that brings up for me, you know, now that you mentioned that, the, the world of church league softball, oh my goodness, mm-hmm. man. Yeah, it's, it's ramped with these these ringers that show up out of nowhere. Right. Um, and you talk about juicing. I can only imagine the levels of uh, testosterone or steroids being taken by some of these competitive softball players, even Mm -hmm. here in Roanoke where it doesn't matter at all. Mm -hmm. Uh, But those guys are just huge half the time. Yeah. But again, um,
2: the rules are so fuzzy that like, what's the, the absurdity of trying to pit yourself against another group of people for whom you know nothing about. And there are no standards for level of play. Um, just kind of underlines like why it's so difficult to Mm -hmm. think about pointing out, pointing out cheating and why to point it out and why we play at all, you know? Mm -hmm.
0: But it's, it's also interesting from the, from that level too, because it's, you're absolutely right, Sam. And yet it matters more in some ways in those team sports. I mean, I know you play in the soccer league, Sam. And so like, When in the other amateur sports, so like you know, you're running and you're cycling and your golf, you are competing against yourself. But in those other, like in that indoor soccer, you're you're actively you can only judge yourself in some ways based on how you compete against the other teams. If the other teams are changing all the time or compete like uh, that, competition aspect matters a whole lot more in that way.
2: Yeah. And I think, I mean, my, my point of view, when it comes to the the team sports I play uh, specifically indoor soccer now is like the only thing to judge how a game went uh, like on paper is the score. So how many goals do you score and how many goals do the other team score? But uh, I go into it recognizing uh, like I've kind of said all along that, that my point is to enjoy being out there to, to get a little competitive nature to try and score a goal. And um, I recognize that, uh, I mean, hell, probably 90 percent of the people I play against are better than me um, that continued to play soccer. I gave up. I gave up playing competitively before high school. And some of these guys, you know, went through college playing together. And so we get we get pummeled a lot. And um, I walk away knowing that, like, I'm out there to just enjoy playing soccer and that I my expectations aren't to win. <laughs> right. Right.
0: At the same time, like, I mean, when you're getting pummeled by some of these teams that you're questioning, like, it's not as fun. I get you. I agree. But uh, there are times, you know, I just think back to my wide ball days, and we played against a team that had Chris Long on it, now a professional football player it just wasn't any fun because you know i I was supposed to guard this guy i can't guard chris (laughs) come on man
2: yeah i mean winning winning is great there's no doubt that winning is better than losing um (laughs) at, at almost any at almost any time um but uh i guess for me like i i can walk away from the game knowing that i that i enjoyed playing the game whether i won or lost and i don't I don't sit around being frustrated about it. I put a lot more stake in my running, and if I, don't, if I don't meet a goal when I run a race or if I don't beat people that I want to beat, I'll stew on that for a while, and I'll be frustrated about that because I know where I stand in running, and I know I'm at a certain skill level, and I don't, I don't take the same approach with soccer because I know I'm just a chump. <laughs> I'm a soccer <laughs> field.
0: Very good. Well, any final thoughts here, folks?
1: I, I'm I'm uh, mulling a question, I think, and I, I'm wondering if there's any significance to it. And so we don't have to dig into it now, but the question this has left me with is um, the role that power plays in all of this. And so I'm thinking about my friend that played professional basketball and came back to the Y League. He has an incredible amount of power uh, in that whole space. And so I, I find it worthwhile to think about like to what extent does he have a responsibility to kind of wield that power in a certain way and the whole thing gets quelled if he just decides not to play in the league Um, and so it makes me think to like other issues in society where um, I think there there is a growing mandate on those with power to start thinking about like how they can forego that power and so, how a lot of these issues can be pierced, and we can negotiate them in ways just by saying like who has the power and uh, in what ways should they willingly give up that power
2: hmm. yeah I really I really think that's interesting. I'm going to spend some time thinking about that too Kyle uh, and again, like when, when you when you wield that power or when you come into a, a situation like that, what is you know for me it's like i, I would want to step back and say well what are the goals here with this amateur sporting endeavor and are we able to meet it am i able to meet it am i a part of that or am i infringing on everybody else's ability to to meet their goals at this amateur level because we're not making money here we're not um right most of us at least aren't making money at it uh and don't have a lot of explicit value to extract from the sport um and so it should be. It should be enjoyed, and, and I think we all have a responsibility to do so fairly and to to ensure, in some capacity, that other people do as well.
0: Yeah. Hmm.
2: I think that's and that's what I what I kind of mull when I think about my running and I think about cheating in, in general. Is like, what is, you know, what are people? I, I think everybody could help. Could 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 benefit from really trying to understand what their goals are with this sport and being Mm -hmm. transparent about that Um, Mm -hmm. and knowing why we're doing it and, and, and being clear, like, you know, being clear about that. It's, it's so easy to, to present the best version of, of what you're doing and how you're doing it on social media. And inevitably, you know, even though those of us who, who do things as honestly and fairly as possible can, um, can color that in a different way on social media and the way we present ourselves on the internet, um, can filter out the the rough edges and just present the, the best version of what you want to do. So.
0: Right. Right. Yeah. I think, you know, I think that's it that's the takeaway for me in many ways is what are you, what are you doing this for? You know, I, uh, I am very happy that this week, you know, I ran my best 5k time ever and, I still feel really good about that. I wouldn't feel very good about that if I had had to do something outside the norm to get it. And isn't that what I'm doing this for, is to feel better about myself and feel like achieve something in that way? And what are you losing when you're not doing that? And so, I, you know, it's, I feel as though, social media has created this environment where we all feel so much pressure to be certain things. And it's allowed us to lie about our lives in ways that we've never been able to lie about our lives because, you know, 50 years ago, people knew if you were lying about stuff going on in your life. Um, and so I, I feel like that's a, uh, you know, everyone should perhaps take that step back as you, as you suggest, Sam, and figure out what their goals are for that activity. And then, uh, you know, if you're, uh, you're not going to meet those goals more than likely if those goals are to be happy and feel accomplishment if you're going to be cheating to get there. Mm -hmm.
2: Yeah, I agree.
0: All right. Well, uh, very good, folks. I I thoroughly enjoyed that. I hope our listeners did as well. But, uh, Kyle, you got some trivia for us, man?
1: Yeah, so last week we asked how many home runs did Michael Jordan hit. Do you all want to wage a
0: guess? Sam, do you want to – I feel like I, I heard this in the documentary, but I, I'll let you guess here.
2: Oh, um, I mean, having not watched the documentary and knowing uh, shockingly little about Michael Jordan's baseball career other than he had one um, for a time, I will say a very small number of, like, um, ten.
1: That's a pretty good guess. Brad, do you know?
0: Well, I'm gonna I'm not gonna embarrass myself by thinking I know and, and sharing the wrong number. So you're gonna have to just share it with
1: us. <laughs> <too>. <laughs> uh he hit three
0: home runs.
2: Three.
1: Yeah. Um which I, I I find like really quite incredible to be honest. Uh in um he did that I think in uh, about a hundred games. And not having played baseball since he was 17 years old, going into Double A baseball and hitting three home runs, I find incredible. <laughs> it's really hard to hit a home run. Um, all right, question for this week. Uh, the, um, there's a guy named Keith DeFieber and a woman named Becky Brain, and they uh, are the current record holders of KOMs um and so i'm wondering if you want to wage a guess at how many kom's each of them have they're both cyclists
0: Hmm. wow
1: keith has more than becky i'll say that
2: so you're looking for two different numbers here yeah two numbers brad are you gonna guess
0: yeah, I I want to say over a thousand, but I, I that feels absurd to say, but uh, that's the fact that he we don't know who this person is and yet he has this record makes me think that he's spending a, an inordinate amount of time doing this.
2: Yeah, I'm going to say I'm going to say less than that. Um just just thinking about um like you've got to live you've got to live in travel places that are dense enough to snag a lot of them and and they're hard to keep. Um even at like even at the amateur level, uh, so I'm gonna say like for him with the higher number, um, like 350. Um, maybe that's a little pessimistic, but uh, they're, just, <laughs> they're not easy to keep forever. Um, and we we if we didn't talk. I will just really quickly we didn't really talk about mechanical doping and cycling um even yeah. at the amateur level and i just want to make sure we note that that's a, a very real thing happening especially in the strava world uh where it's hard to catch yeah. yeah
1: well um you'll have to tune in next week to find out uh how many koms keith and
0: becky have all right
2: it's a very good question kyle thank you <laughs> mm-hmm.
0: All right, well, uh, thank you all for listening. Thank you, Sam and, and Carl, today. Uh, please give us a rating and review wherever you listen to this, and we'll be back next week. But thanks again. Thanks, Al. Thanks, Al. Thanks, Al. To pay attention to the voices that are doing the framing. What we're talking about is the consumer is Withheld
1: and allotted only. Nobody's, nobody's, calling, nope. nobody, nobody's
0: calling LeBron Black Jesus. Is a huge Akimpe Matumbo fan.